Welcome to Beyond Politics. I'm your host, Paul Hodes, with my co-host, Matt Robeson, broadcast on WKXLAM and FM, streamed live at nhtalkradio.com, and podcast wherever you get your podcasts. You can find us at beyondpoliticspodcast.com. And I'm really pleased today to welcome to Beyond Politics a dear old friend, not old in years, but just because we've known each other a long time. Pia Carason is the managing director at SKD Knickerbocker, SKDK, a top political communications and political consulting firm. Now, Matt and I got to know Pia when she helped our friend Carol Shea Porter win re-election in the toughest house incumbent re-election race in the country in 2008, the same year that I won re-election to the House. Pia then became the youngest female chief of staff in Congress for my dear friend, Congresswoman Gabby Giffords. I, I think, if I'm remembering correctly, I put in a recommendation for Pia. Um, oh my. Well, following the 2011 shooting that injured Congresswoman Giffords and 12 others and left six people dead, Pia helped to start Giffords' organization that advocates for solutions to prevent gun violence. She's also served as the Assistant Secretary for Public Affairs at the Department of Homeland Security. What an interesting career so far. She is a, a top strategist and a really terrific person. Pia, welcome to Beyond Politics. Thank you, Congressman. I am thrilled to be here. What a lovely introduction. Well, uh, you know, effusive introductions are the name of the game because it's all true. So I hope you're blushing. But listen, as, as we're talking today, we are once again on the heels of yet more mass shootings in America. You know this issue as well as anybody else in the country. You've, you've been in it for forever. So as, look, we're marking the 10th anniversary of that terrible day that injured our friend Gabby. Have we made any progress in the past 10 years? Has political tribalism just run so rampant that nothing can ever get done? Are we in the same spot? Are we treading water? What, what are you seeing? Yeah, look, I think that it's frustrating because it feels like given the difficulty of this issue and the literal life and death outcomes connected to policy here that, you know, you'd want more and you want it faster. Um, certainly at the federal level, it's been a bit slow. I think at the state level, um, there has actually been a number of um, a number of successes that, you know, from red flag laws, to background check laws, um, temporary restraining orders that have allowed for there to be some progress. But still, I think Americans are frustrated that, an issue that actually has pretty wide support. Um, you know, it's contentious in the halls of Congress, but it's really not that contentious um, out in uh, the rest of the country that I think people are frustrated, rightly so, that there's not been more done. So, you know, unfortunately, partisanship in Washington couldn't be higher today. And it's, it's, it's preventing this issue and many others from from real action. But, you know, President Biden, um, you know, recently took some steps that um, I think are helpful and sort of show the 
the public the 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 path forward here and and just to you know i think he does a good job reminding people like continue to fight for these issues like perseverance will in the end win um but unfortunately not as fast as i think we all wish you know let me just follow up because not to put too fine a point on the frustration in new hampshire a state you know well and which uh, we are living uh, we we live in um republicans took charge of everything in in the last election cycle house senate executive council the governor's office and the democrats had that actually uh, done some work uh in the prior session uh, to try to deal with rampant gun violence. It's really about gun safety. Um, The NRA seemed to have been in some retreat. Uh, They filed for bankruptcy after after just acting really as a funnel for Russian money, the Vladimir Putin's best friend. Oh, we love the NRA here in Moscow. So but now the Republicans are back and they're, they're, they're just trying to undo everything that the Democrats did. It's a topsy-turvy seesaw of, of, of politics. It looks like Trumpism is alive and well in the United States. So to add to the frustration of the public, I guess one of the questions is they may be frustrated but are, is the public still committed to action? Do they, uh, is the public still ready to go to the mat to try to influence uh, the politicians? And is there, is there any hope? Are the, is, are, is there any hope? I think so. I mean, I think, I think you're, you're keying into frustration, which is so, um, so valid right now on gun violence prevention and many other issues. But I think that as, you know, and I'm a new parent, but I think as, you know, parents continue to send their kids to school, they continue to have these lingering thoughts of, oh my God, what if it were my community that, you know, uh, violence strikes and how would I handle it? I think that there's just a um, unending well of passion to solve this crisis. I really do. Um, and I, you know, yes, we have to, um, we have to withstand the, you know, partisan changes in state houses like New Hampshire, but, and that's difficult for sure. And I think a lot of, uh, you know, I think there's a lot of connection here on this issue with just general democracy reform, everything involved in HR1, um, that, uh, you know, that, uh, you know, our friends at Citizens United are working so hard on because, you know, to, to control the political process, to gerrymander congressional districts, uh, that's where a lot of uh, the NRA has found their power. Um, and they've, they've, you know, run primary, Republican primaries against their more moderate members. And they've, you know, been able to hold, um, to hold districts that really don't, are not in line with their voters anymore. And I, and I think, you know, that's, that's a really just an important factor here too, that I hope we can do more on as a country. Well, you know, since you brought up the way that each party deals politically with this issue, it's a great place to go. And I want to ask you about this. I mean, you and I go back a long way on this particular topic. We've both run campaigns in New Hampshire, and it is sensitive. New Hampshire is actually not a bad model for some of the marginal political territory around the country. Of course, you have vast experience in Arizona, another, you know, prime candidate for this, this kind of discussion. In the, in the early aughts, I guess you would call it, there was sort of a, a, a dominant line of thinking in inside democratic circles, 
big D, the party, the Democratic Party, which was, look, in districts like this, in states like this, you just don't want to be super aggressive on the gun issue. Unless you're like Joe Manchin and you're going to run a campaign ad where you're shooting the cap and trade bill with a rifle to uh, to show how strong you are pro gun. It was just and 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 I, you know, as a political advisor, you know, to Paul, among others, I had long taken the approach of, you know what, you have to pick your fights in politics. And this is just not a fight that you want to pick unless it is your signature issue. If you're Carolyn Maloney, fine, go for it. But I feel like in the, in the last decade, that calculus has changed quietly inside Democratic Party politics. Yes. You have been on the vanguard of that change. So is that your sense as well? What is going on behind the scenes for Democrats? Are they thinking about this differently? Do they, are they less afraid of their own shadow? Can they afford to be more assertive in places like Arizona and New Hampshire? Paul, you want to jump in yeah, and I add do. to my already super long question. I, Go ahead. I do. I do. It's a, well, you know, you, you, you're such a smart guy. Your questions are long, but it's really sparked a recollection for me uh, because I remember the discussions we had when I was, uh, when I was running and, and your advice was really clear, which was do whatever we need to do to keep the NRA out of our race, do whatever we need to do. I took positions then uh, that were for me, uh, admittedly tortured positions. Uh, they, it, it made me twist inside out. It didn't feel good, even at the, at the time, the positions about, um, I remember the-, the 50 caliber of, rifles comes to mind. 50 caliber rifles comes to mind, the NRA questionnaires. Uh, the issues around the uh, D.C. Um, uh, gun, guns at home case, um, I really had to bend over backwards and we were able to keep the NRA out. When I ran unsuccessfully for state Senate recently in New Hampshire, my views had totally changed. Um, the decade and history of what had gone on, uh, the, the seeming, I hate to use this word, explosion, um, of gun violence that we saw um, uh, Sandy Hook was after I was in service really changed my mind. And I'm curious, Pia, whether you've seen that with lots and lots of other Democrats. Yeah, I, I think that two things have happened. One, it has become a more comfortable and safer political environment to, for maybe folks like yourself, be more honest about their you know, their true feelings and not be as concerned about what, you know, the NRA may do or not do. The second thing that's happened, though, is um, really like tactically, the NRA has uh, has really had a re reduction in their power. Um, the sort of like truth about about them that I learned when I started to get involved here is they have their bark is far worse than their bite. They they really they really, you know, were not actually spending that much money in these races, but the, the threat of them was just looming large. And, um, you know, the, yeah, I mean, Congressman, you and Gabby were in the same class. You were recruited by a DCCC chair at the time that literally was out to recruit, you know, moderate Democrats that would ignore this issue. Um, and to no one's fault, it was just the culture of the, of the time and it's completely changed. You know, um, the, the story of, 
you know, Democrats winning over the last um, really decade has been about the, the suburbs of American cities. And, and in the suburbs live, uh, you know, uh, families that uh, would like their children and their families to be safe when they go to school, they go to the movies, they go to the grocery store. And um, that's where the gun safety movement has had a lot of success. And through research and polling, finding that actually no matter who these voters are going to be supporting, um, they're, 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 they, they may go to the to the polls supporting a Republican, but they also go to the polls with a deep desire to have safer gun laws and a safer community. And that's where Democrats have been able to take that mantle up and use it as an electoral success. Um, and and that's what we just we just keep seeing it. And um, you know, I think I think in the old days, right, if you will, 10, 20 years ago, it would it was more like Gun, gun safety policy was used as a dog whistle that this person must be like a flaming liberal and like they can't possibly be pro-business and sort of understand, you know, how to lead like a more diverse electorate. And that's just not the case anymore. You know, since you brought up the NRA issue and Paul, you did too, I'm going to go ahead and uh, I'm going to cowboy a question that I think Paul was was planning to ask. Why, why don't we talk about the NRA for a second? Because it is super duper interesting. Yeah. I mean, again, not to put all our listeners in the way, way back machine with us, but in the aughts, when we were working most heavily, well, you still are, but when I was working most heavily in campaigns and in Congress, the NRA was, as our president likes to say, a BFD. Mm-hmm. Um, at least they felt that way. They felt that way to blue dog Democrats, Democrats who represent rural, more conservative, more marginal districts that are harder for Democrats to win. And now we're at a point where, as Paul was alluding to, the NRA is bankrupt, literally. They're on the run, literally, in in that they've been chased out of one state and into another. They're disorganized. And all insider accounts from our friends and former colleagues and reporting in Congress is that the current discussion on gun violence in Congress, they're a no-show. The NRA is, is fundamentally not influencing that discussion. That is definitely not the way it was 10 years ago when an issue like this would come up. So for, look, for a long time, they were the boogeyman in this discussion. Democrats were afraid of the power of the NRA, what they could do in campaigns, what they could do in terms of money, their mailing lists. And as you say, the way that they could say, hey, Paul Hodes is the chairman of Gay Witches for Abortion. Do you really want a guy like that representing you in Congress? Were we wrong about them all along? Did we were they just like Donald Trump? Were they like really good at portraying an image of themselves that had nothing to do with reality? Um, possibly. You know, I, I think that you're, you know, I, I, I see where you're going. It's interesting to think about because, yeah, what, what would have happened if uh, in the early aughts we had just sort of not, not, not given them as much credence um, and credit? Yeah, I think also, um, you know, we at the same time started to run you know, have candidates, Democratic candidates run that were either gun owners, uh, you know, or sort of able to speak truthfully about the fact that gun ownership is a tradition in America. And that's not something that we're looking to change. What we're looking to change is the, um, you know, the, the uh, guns falling into the wrong hands and, and killing innocent Americans. Um, we, all, we just like didn't talk about that openly. We didn't know how to do it. It was like we struggled, whether it was our candidates 
really truly weren't gun owners and didn't have any kind of like history in that culture or or just absolute fear and you know the nra it's it's fascinating they're like they're a huge company they're basically a for-profit corporation right um their their executives are they're they're literally profit uh greatly from the from their work and but they talk about it as though they're out there representing the little guy you know just the everyday average gun owner helping him or, or her you know with cheaper access to ammunition and you know gun club memberships and all of this sort of like feels very um you know, innocent and um, what could you possibly have to complain about? The truth is it's led by, it has been for a long time led by a guy that is not a gun owner. He's known to be basically a wealthy Northern Virginia living elite, well-educated type that probably truthfully thumbs his nose down at, you know, the uh, many members of the NRA. So once we kind of keyed into that and realized, hey, you know, actually someone like uh, Gabby Giffords and her husband, um, you know, who are who, who come from a Western state with gun ownership and are gun owners themselves and could like actually relate much better to moderate gun owners than uh, the executives at the NRA, it became sort of like clear to them and all of us that like, this is just, we don't need to be afraid of them the way that. I think the I, th I will say I think the NRA uh, bankruptcy thing is a is a, a a bit of a lie. I think that they are trying to evade New York's Attorney General, and um, you know we'll see what what happens with that. Um, they've uh, I we don't need to be afraid of them, but we should not discount their power still, especially in Congress. Uh, and that's what, you know, I think we're just constantly needing to kind of keep, keep working on. They're not publicly in this discussion, but privately, I'm sure that they've got, you know, their thumb on, uh, on folks to make sure that, you know, that their opinion is heard. And they, they've classically always been afraid of one thing or another, like, for example, they'll be, what I understood in the, you know, during the 2013 background check movement is that they really actually weren't too upset about the idea of universal background checks, but they were very upset at, at the idea of what might come next. And so they sort of, you know, threw it all down, you know, we're going to die on this hill, uh, background checks, just to sort of as a campaign tactic. So we've also been able to understand a bit more about how they operate. Um, which is much more stealth um, than you'd imagine. Well, you know, I mean, not, not to put uh, too fine a point on the discussion, but they have a wonderfully attractive website. And uh, not to try to sell anybody on, on the NRA, but uh, it, uh, it has uh, good looking pictures. They, they have sections that say our rights are under attack like never before joined today. They cast themselves as the tireless defenders of your Second Amendment rights. What they really are is the tireless defenders of the rights of the manufacturers to manufacture weapons of death. They are the tireless defenders of death. So, I mean, that, that's really what they're about. But from their website, you'd never know it. The NRA Ring of Freedom, dedicated to securing the future of freedom. And by the way, just in case you're, you're interested, you could buy an NRA five-in-one RFID blocking wallet so that uh, the evil deep state 
cannot figure out that you're a card-carrying member of the NRA. And if that wasn't enough, they have a great picture of a, a young woman who is carrying the latest in fashion, the American hobo concealed carry handbag. It must be a big, big seller in New Hampshire, along with the latest news about all the bad things that Democrats and Joe Biden are are doing. And not to put not, that that's just a personal segue to, to talking about our our great president, the he of calm demeanor, the aw shucks president of the United States, the hey folks um, guy that we know and love instead of the inflammatory carrot top Cheeto. But, but he was so frustrated that Congress you know, wasn't going to do anything about guns. He, he took executive action. Um, he, he reined in homemade ghost guns requiring the Justice Department issue a new annual report on firearms trafficking, uh, regulated weapons with stabilizing braces, all those great weapons that you see in the shoot 'em up movies where the snipers fall to the ground and they deploy their stabilizing braces so that they can fire multi-rounds you know, into the bad guys. In other words, how do you turn a pistol into a rifle? Uh, the proposed releasing a model red flag red legislation. So it all looks great. It sounds great. It's great that the president is taking executive action, but does it mean anything? I can't, I can't say the word on radio that I really mean. Does it mean I'll just say anything? Um, is there anything else that the Biden administration can do? Uh, is there anything they could do that Congress would, would act on? Well, you know, you know better than anyone, there's really so much that the president can do, right? I mean, uh, Congress needs to, the Senate needs to pass the universal background checks bill that the House has already passed. That would mean a lot. The Senate should confirm uh, Biden's nominee to the ATF, David Chipman, who's a wonderful uh, law enforcement uh, veteran that, uh, you know, 25 year veteran of the ATF that would be, you know, uh, I know serve the country proudly in that role. Um, and, you know, I think that what we saw from Biden, you know, if you think about the 2007 and uh, the, the 2007 and eight years, that Congress, we were, uh, we had a lot of ability to do, to make action on gun, gun violence prevention and never did. Uh, President Obama, you know, it really wasn't, uh, I think, until the, the shooting that injured Gabby and so many others in Tucson that he really began to talk about it. Um, and that was three years into his, preg his presidency. So I think from President Biden, we're seeing a, a clear statement that, like, he is ready to move on this. He's waiting for Congress to, to do more. And in the meantime, he's, he's uh, doing as much as I think he can, you know, from his position. Um, and, you know, I think to the point we were talking about earlier that in terms of like the the political environment i think it's just so important that we continue to remind people that this is an issue that we are not shying away from that is a winning issue an electoral winning issue um in many communities in many districts around the country and um i i think that was that was a big part of what i saw last week from president biden in the in the rose garden one of the things we do on this show is we take people who give advice on politics and communications. And 
for, who, who charge top dollar for that advice. And we ask them to give their advice for free on the air. And I'm going to put you in that position because I feel like I can. We go back a long way. Yes. So my big question is, how do we actually make progress? How do advocates for preventing gun violence make progress in the next five years? What does that roadmap look like? Now, one option would be kind of a top down. You know, you were just saying a moment ago that really there's only so far we can go with executive actions. Congress needs to act. So one thing that you could do is kind of do what LBJ did in 1957 and just try to pass something, something incremental on the, in that case on civil rights, in this case on gun violence, even if you know it's incremental, just to start to generate momentum. So that would be one strategy. Or another strategy might be what you alluded to before, which is there actually has been some progress at the state level. So do you take more of an approach like what marijuana advocates have done in the last decade, start to rack up some wins at the state level and have that bottom up pressure start to affect the situation in Congress? So which approach should Democrats and Republican gun safety advocates take or something else? Yeah. Well, it's a good question. And, you know, the the problem with comparing gun safety to, let's say, you know, the marijuana legalization movement is that um, there's a lot of money to be made in the marijuana movement, right? Like there's, um, you know, the marijuana uh, distribution uh, plans are being laid by the alcohol distributors in, of America. Um, these are publicly traded companies that see a great, huge new business opportunity. So um, there's no one that's going to financially profit on uh, gun safety. We are going to profit as a country, as a community. Um, and, uh, you know, I mean, it's it's about human lives, I guess. And I don't know how you value that. But um, there's no dollars to be made here the way that there that there has been on the, you know, the furtherance of selling guns. So it's a bit tricky on that front. I think the answer is both. We have got to keep uh, pressure on our state legislators uh, to continue to pass, um, you know, stronger gun laws, to continue to to do what they can at the state level and, and make sure that that some of these really destructive laws are not passed, like the um, this, this concealed carry permit. Uh, the changes to those state laws around the country are really are really particularly uh, threatening. I think, um, you know, and and that's that's got to happen. At the same time, you know, we have a Democratic president, a slim majority in the House and Senate. We have got to move on something as simple and widely supported. Over seventy percent of Americans including gun owners and Republicans support the idea of a universal background check. It is, it's not controversial. It says nothing about uh, guns in, in society, which of course people have all, all kinds of additional views on. All it says is that you should be a, you know, a, a healthy, stable, uh, non-violent criminal to acquire a gun. It's really not controversial and Congress has got to pass it. So both have to happen. Um, and, you know, how that how that actually tactically happens, you know, it's, it's a matter of making sure that, you know, some of the moderate Democrats and Republicans in the Senate, including 
folks like Pat Toomey, who uh, is on his way out and uh, put his name on the 2013 background check bill. I don't see a reason why he wouldn't be, um, you know, I think forever credited with potentially passing, actually passing something that signs into law, this, this uh, Congress. So him um, and, and then also making sure some of the villains of the past uh, like uh, Kelly Ayotte aren't uh, allowed to find their way back into public office because she was expelled, um, I think, uh, on a number of issues, but uh, including the fact that she was just so weak on that issue and could never find the backbone to deal with it. So, Well, you know, I, I went to Congress saying I was going to bring my backbone with me, and my backbone was a little squishy on guns at the time. Uh, it's, firm, it's firmed up considerably since then, but I'm not running. I'm not running for office, and, and I'm not serving. One of the things that that uh, Matt Robeson and I have long talked about and thought about is messaging and how messaging works and what what effect it has. And one of the changes that's happened over the past decade has been the beginning. Maybe maybe I, I'm not giving it enough credit. The beginning of a change in the way. Um, messaging has impacted the debate over gun violence. Uh, and that has been to move, to try to move the discussion away from the issue of Second Amendment rights. Um, we have a very, very complex and deeply rooted um, uh, attraction, apparently, to guns in our culture. Um, and um, it goes along with all with, uh, you know, with Charlton Heston hoisting, hoisting a musket uh, all the way, all the way back to our pioneer days. Um, guy riding around in a pickup truck with an with a uh, AR-51 must feel just like Charlton Heston. The, the messaging in order to be effective really needs to turn completely away and look at this, I, you know, as it's a matter of public health. Um, and in fact, the, uh, the American Association for Public Health lists gun violence along with climate change as, yes. as one of its public health emergencies. Um, so by making sure that the grassroots messaging is all about a public health and gun safety and never even touches anything to do with the Second Amendment, um, we can, I think, uh, take some steps that that would be um, that that would be helpful. Yes. I, I think it would be more helpful, and I think there's just got to be a lot more pressure from the grassroots on members of Congress because members of Congress will respond if their jobs are threatened, and that it's going to take threatening the jobs uh, of the members of Congress over gun issues to really make a difference. That's what's going to move people. Uh, members, yeah. of Cong members of Congress will do anything to keep their jobs. Anything, people, yes. anything, yep. except for Matt Gates. <laughs> who, 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 you know, I don't know what he'd do, but yeah, we shouldn't touch that one. Okay, we're, we're, we won't we won't go there. My tortured brain sometimes makes segues that have nothing to do with the subject at hand, and 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 the Matt Gates story is is just too attractive for me. Yeah, no, I I completely agree, um, and that's why you know that's that's the at the heart of the gun violence prevention effort is 
um, making sure that members of Congress and candidates for, for Congress know that their constituents um, support stronger gun laws, they support safer communities, they're not willing to be told that we have to just live with, you know, I think this year, north of 40,000 deaths by gun, um, and many, many more uh, injuries. And, you know, uh, that issue became much more than it came off the paper for me, you know, in the during the Tucson shooting, when you think about you know, Gabby is not a, is not part of that number of folks that passed away from gun violence, but man, her life is forever different. And, and along the way, I've met so many people that, you know, were, were heading towards uh, a happy and prosperous life and are now, you know, forever physically uh, disabled or otherwise. I mean, it's, um, you know, and that those, those folks aren't even accounted for in the, in the gun by you know, death by gun number. So it's, you know, it's hard to find somebody today that doesn't have someone in their, you know, friend or their family or social circle that has not been affected by gun violence. It's that it's that much of a problem. And um, people are just are not willing to be told like, that's sorry, it's just part of what it means to be an American. You just have to live with it. Can, can I just I just want to follow up a little bit. You know, I, I, I just made a a plea for for messaging around the public health of Gun, gun violence is a public health a crisis and emergency, which it is. And at the same time, uh, you know, I'll, 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 I'll argue against myself in the following way. Here we are in the midst of a COVID pandemic and we can't get people to wear masks. We can't uh, get people to be vaccinated. Um, public health and safety uh, is, a, is a tough sell in a tribalized uh, environment. Um, is the public health and safety argument a tough sell on guns? Is it tougher than COVID-19? Is it, is it, can it work? Um, yeah, I mean, I think that the, for me, what I'd love to see, I and mean, we're seeing more doctors get involved in this conversation, which is awesome because, you know, they can, they can speak from a position none of us even imagine because they're treating gun violence uh, patients. But um, I want to see like a big commitment from the Bill Gateses of the world on this, you know, people that are have devoted them, themselves to global public health. This is a global public health crisis. It's particularly bad in America. Uh, so let's start here. <laughs> um, uh, but I, I think it's a matter of funding, um, funding streams on that front, which we're just starting to see more and more of, but it's still been not, you know, for the amount of money out there, it's not, uh, it's not enough that's being spent on on this issue. And I don't know. I mean, you, I, I continue to believe in the American people, you know, even if it's naive to say that, but I just, I continue to believe that if we have leaders that tell the truth, that, you know, use data science and facts as the basis of their messaging, that uh, even the folks that in the last four years have been particularly radicalized by our former president, um, that they're not lost causes forever. Well, and you know, just to broaden that that issue out a little bit, um, you know, unless our listeners get the wrong impression, Pia is, like we said, one of the country's leading experts on advocacy against gun violence. But you're also a, a broader political communications expert, and we've alluded to the fact that Republicans have been particularly successful about deploying wedge issues to 
polarize the electorate into the two cultural tribes we live in and to essentially equate Democrats with, you know, I was tongue in cheek referring to gay witches for abortion, but that's pretty much it. It's the, it's the three G's, right? It's God, gays, and guns. And the idea that Democrats, they're not like you. They have these elite arugula eating, latte sipping coastal values. And even if it is against your economic self-interest. And you know deep down that the Republican Party really just wants to cut taxes for people who make a heck of a lot more money than you. Forget the economics. You can't vote for these liberal elitists and their woke agenda. They're pretty good at that. So are we losing as Democrats that battle to define ourselves and to define the terms of the political debate? And if we are, how do we win it back? Yeah, I mean, I think in some parts of the country, in some districts, we've we've not done that as well as we could. I think, uh, but I do think that that there are uh, a number of great candidates around the country and, and and elected officials that see all of that as a distraction, which is what it is. You know, they they want you to um, to pay be be answering and defending these these calls for you know you're too liberal you're too this you're too that because if not what we'd be talking about is our economy and the fundamental flaws in uh in the uh structure that we have here today where the you know uh working class and middle class are are not making it uh on that one job and their benefits are you know not enough to to cover them if there's a crisis if they have benefits at all i mean it's to me it's it's so clear we have got to just stick on the core messages and the reasons that the democratic party exists which is like we are for working people and uh you know the the, the core issues that uh that that people really care about and you know i think i think for better or worse the um the hot button issues have certainly changed. You know, it's this like, you know, Green New Deal, right? Like, I can't believe how much that has like become a, uh, a boogeyman in elections. But but even that, it's like just you know, stay stay away from the fray. You know, what I would that's my advice to candidates that are getting drawn into these elaborate fights. It's like they're going to say what they want to say. It's all an attempt to distract from the conversation that's most important, which is, you know, we are, you know, we live here in the richest, most prosperous country in the world. And we cannot accept an economy that leaves people behind, that uh, a healthcare system that doesn't do nearly enough to, to provide coverage if you're sick. And it's, it, you know, like that is not an okay thing. And if you're talking about that, you will find success in, in elections. I'm, I'm, I've seen it, I, you know, proud to work for a number of candidates that have had that kind of discipline. And leave the rest of it to Twitter because that's really all uh, all all that it is. It's just a, a, a clickbait sort of fight that um, that isn't about the issues that matter. So what but, do we do? can I Matt? Let me just say. So what do we do? I mean, you're a, you're a, you're a communication strategist. You're a political strategist. What do we do with a party that's made up of of uh, cats, not dogs? I mean. The Republicans are all dogs, right? I mean, you, you you give them an order and top top to bottom, they'll follow along. They'll do what they're told. You tell them to sit, they'll sit. Roll over, they roll over. Wave your tail, they'll wave their tail. Beg for a bone, they'll beg for a bone. And they'll do it from the top to the bottom. Democrats are cats. 
right? You tell them to sit and they walk away. You tell them to roll over and they, they scratch your eyes out. You, you, you offer them a bone and they go somewhere else looking for a mouse. Democrats just run in, in every, every conceivable direction. So you talked, you talked very persuasively about your advice to individual candidates. What do you do with a party that lacks total discipline on messaging and can't get it right? Well, the pro- the problem is that we you're right, right? I mean, the Democratic, the, the Republican Party, and I want to say to your listeners, when we talk about this, it's not it's not everyday Republicans it, or everyday Democrats. We're talking about the party here, right? So the Republican Party, you're right, is very uh, they they fall in line. They're very disciplined. They're also terrified of a primary. I mean, they just absolutely terrified. The Republicans or the, the Democrats, on the other hand. You know, I think on a whole, we sort of like we primary a lot. We love yeah. it. We love tell to get me, tell me, tell me about yeah. it. Yeah, and um, you know, uh, that's that's tricky, right? Because I do think for sort of the health of the democracy, primary is great. Let it let it happen. Let it get fought out. But I, I think that um, what I encourage people to do is like again. Don't don't just win a primary. Don't get cheap and win a primary on the far left party wing of our party. Don't just like rib your primary opponents on Medicare for all or Green New Deal because you know that you can get enough activists to vote for you. Because then you, you know you're gonna have a really hard time in a general election. Like we can we can I think as a party do more to elevate the uh, conversation. Uh, and but you're right. It's not like there's no Mitch McConnell coming down and saying like this is how it happens and everybody fall in line. Like it's it's a it's a it's definitely something that I think we as a party struggle with, and it's just the nature of us. It's like we are we're the big tent, and with that comes all kinds of problems. So at the risk of giving our listeners auditory whiplash, I want to completely divert onto a final topic for you, Pia. And our listeners can't see you right now. I can. I have a Zoom link. And I have to tell everyone listening on podcast on radio that Pia looks amazing, especially as a new parent. It's unnatural. I suspect that you have a ring that you got from a creature under a mountain somewhere or the other possibility. And by the way, comparatively, we're of a similar vintage. I look like I look like a bomb went off somewhere near me. And, and, and you look incredible. You have a company called Republic Restoratives. I think you've been taking some of your own restorative sauce. What is Republic Restoratives? And is there any way that our listeners can access whatever elixir of youth you are currently taking? And, and oh. just, to, just to ask, didn't you, weren't you involved in a brewery or a distillery? Yes. That's, that's what I'm talking about, Paul. I'm thinking of some, that's what I'm talking yeah, about. I mean, Paul, Paul, you're walking right into the trap. I was oh, in for Pia. Okay, Boy, I'm sorry. You're, you're easy quarry. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> Go yeah, ahead, yeah. Pia. Yes, uh, it's a distillery. Although my mother always asked me, "How is the brewery going?" But um, that's fine. It's uh. a uh, it's a distillery. We are a crowdfunded craft distillery uh, located here in Washington D.C. And we are the proud producers of Civic Vodka, Borough Bourbon, Rodham Rye, Purpose Rye, Madam Whiskey, Chapman's Apple Brandy. Where uh, can people find this stuff Where can we online? get it? Okay, I well, here's the thing. Here's the thing. We've been talking about guns, but the liquor law in America is so incredibly antiquated. And, and I'm assuming most of your listeners are in the great state of New Hampshire, where 
pandemic. We're all over. We actually have international listeners too. No, no, no. Okay, so. okay. Well, then go to our website. For those of you that don't live in a quote control state where the government gets to tell you what you want to drink, um, uh, republicrestoratives.com and and you can uh, you can find your way to a bottle of our spirit. And if you're ever in the Washington region and we get out of COVID, uh, we've got a lovely event space and cocktail bar that we host weddings, oh, happy hours and all that. Here we come. It's Beyond Politics. I'm Paul Hodes with my co-host, Matt Robeson. We've been talking with Pia Carasone, an expert in all kinds of things, including Madam Whiskey, restorative, republicrestoratives.com. It's Beyond Politics. We'll be back next week. Thanks for listening, folks. Bye.